So today we are working on the last chapter of the book of Ruth. That's the, the, the great thing about, about small books is that you can finish them relatively quickly. Because we can, we can open it up, we can get some understanding, and we're able to pull all of these details together. And they're able to see the story move, and we're able to cover it in, in a relatively short period of time. And that is, that is Ruth, right? We're able to see all that God is doing in and amongst there, and we're able to see our own lives move in the story of Ruth. I mean, all the, all the details, all the happenstance of life, the people we meet, the things that we get to do, the places we live, and then we look back upon them, and whether you're 33, 63, or 103, there are landmarks and things that you can point at, and you say, now I can see how the hand of God was moving in my life and was bringing me to a point of brokenness and submission to where I could cry out, God, save me. And we see that, and we see the resolution of this story today in the fourth chapter of the book of Ruth. And so what I want you to see, and what I want you to keep your, your eye out for today as we go through these four chapters, is look for the resolution that God is bringing through the happenstance of life in this family. We read in the first four verses, it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, Turn aside, friend, sit down here. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, sit down here as well. So they sat down and he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Well, just in case you weren't here last week, you'll remember, or you wouldn't remember because you weren't here. But in case you weren't here, let me give you the, the brief kind of rundown of what we went over last week. Naomi concocts a plan. She's begun to believe in hope. She's begun to see that, that God is moving and working in her life, and she keys in on Boaz as the key ingredient to bringing redemption, to bringing restoration for her and for Ruth. And she, she concocts this plan to put Ruth and Boaz together, and they have to have this DTR. They've got to determine what their relationship is going to look like, and they do that on the threshing floor after midnight as she lays there by his stinky feet, recovering from the effects of the mule kick that he's just offered to her abdomen. You remember this? Okay. And so that's, that's kind of what happens. And so they have this story, and Boaz is in there, and he's talking to her, and she says, you are a redeemer. Spread your wing over me. She says, marry me. She says, redeem me. And Boaz says, you're right. I'm a redeemer. But in verse 12, he throws a wrench into the plans. Chapter 2, or chapter 3, verse 12, he throws a wrench into the plans. Ruth's laying there, she's begun to like the smell of his feet, and, and, and what he says to her, he says, you're right, I'm a redeemer. And she says, I knew it. And he says, but there's one closer than I. See this budding romance. They've, they've discovered, they've discussed how their feelings towards one another, but Boaz's response is, he says, look, you've got it right in part, but there's someone else whose place it is before me to work for your redemption, to work for your restoration, to work for your protection. But you'll remember that he offers her this promise. He says, either he's going to redeem you or I will, but I won't rest 
Until we see this completed, I won't rest until we see this situation resolved. And so he sends her away the next morning. Remember, he, he saddles her up with 60 pounds of grain. He sends her back. And then when we pick up in chapter 4, it says, Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And so likely what happened is Ruth goes one way, Boaz goes another. Now, we come to this discussion of, of what this gate is like. Imagine, if you will, just for our, our setting, that, that there's only one entrance and one exit out into the city of Greenville, Okay. Everybody walks or rides a, rides a horse, gets on a cart, and, and rides it out. There's, there's no motorcycles, there's no cars, and that's the setting. Now let's place this here on 34 and 30. And so people are, people are in and out, commerce is exchanged here. We see old men sitting around drinking coffee, telling stories of yesteryears, and saying, you know, in my day, this is how it was. I cut my own coffee, I, I pressed out my own beans. I didn't have a French press, I just, you know, grabbed green beans, throw them in my mouth, and chew them, and made my own coffee internally. Everybody's like, that's amazing. Why would you do that? Give up on it. He's like, because one day I knew someone would roast and grind and Starbucks would, would do this and it would be amazing. That didn't, none of this happened. <clears throat> you guys were like, really? What? Green beans, chewing them, that's insane. And so all these things would take place here. Since so Boaz goes out and he's, he's in that area. And we see God's hand moving again. Boaz is at the gate. And the man he had spoken of the night before happens to walk by. He just happens to be exiting at the time that Boaz is there. He didn't leave earlier. He didn't leave later. He wasn't in the crowd in the midst of people. And Boaz you know, missed him and couldn't spot him. Boaz spots him walking out. And she says, friend, turn aside here. And we see that God has given Boaz the type of life and the type of experience and the name in the city of Bethlehem that he's respected, that he's known, that his word is followed. And so this guy hears it, he doesn't say, shut it, Bo. I got places to go and people to see. No, what he hears from Boaz, he hears a man he respects, he hears a man whose word he follows, and so he goes and he sits there, and then Boaz surrounds them with ten elders, ten older and respected men of the city. And they're going to enter into this type of legal dialogue. They're going to enter, enter into this legal dialogue, and, and really for the exchange of property. So this is what he tells the man. He says, you'll remember Naomi. And, and, and the guy says, oh yeah, I remember her. She came back. She doesn't want to be Naomi anymore. She's bitter. I, I know her. The wife of Elimelech. These people are all related. He says, I know her. And he said, well, let me give you a new development. She's selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So he puts it to him this way. He says, and I came here today to tell you that I think it would be a good idea for you to purchase this land. Verse 4, he says, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. So he's pitching the land to this guy. He's pitching the idea that this guy is going to be able to have a workable piece of property. He says, If you will redeem it, redeem it. He says, Buy the land, but if you will not, tell me that I may know, for there is no one else besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. So look at this scenario. Boaz tells this, this guy who's not even named. He goes to him and says, hey, look, there are two people who have the ability to get this land. There's you, and then there's me. 
And I'm coming here today to tell you that I think that you should take this land. I'm coming here today to tell you that I think you should work to redeem this land. But if you don't want it, I'm going to take it. So Boaz, in some ways, is telling him that the land is a value, that it's, that it's worthy, that it's, it's good land. And so the guy responds, he said, man, I will redeem it. I want that. Who wouldn't want land? I mean, it's a good deal. Somebody walks up to you and says, would you like an ice cold Dr. Pepper? You say, absolutely. I love Dr. Pepper. And then they say, I licked the can. And, and you say, no, I don't want it anymore. And that's not quite what happened here. But we see that the guy's no longer interested because Boaz tells him in verse 5, he says, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. So this is what he does. He explains it to him. He says, look, I understand you want the land. That is a good thing. I want the land myself. He says, look, I'm not being tricky. I want you to understand all the ramifications of you accepting this. He says, on the day that you take possession of the land, you also get this woman. You get Ruth the Moabite. I mean, he's being very precise in the way that he describes her. And so the guy is already signing up to get a wife. But he's not just signing up to get a wife. Do you remember the way the text said? He said, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate his name. This is what he's telling him. He says, you get Ruth, and you need to work to bring about an heir. You need to work to bring about an heir for Elimelech, for Malon. You need to work to bring about an heir that won't be yours. So this is what he's asking him to do. He's asking him to marry this woman, to get the land, but someday, when he has a child, and that child gets old enough, that child is going to get the land. So he's asking him to, to spend his, his time and his resources caring for a woman, caring for her mother, caring for a child, and he's not going to get anything from it. But it's going to cost him something of great value. And so the man hears it, and he, he thinks to himself, and he says in verse 6, he says, whoa. I can't redeem that for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. And so the man looks at it, and, and we're so quick to look at this guy and say, you are, you're worthless, the narrator didn't name you forever after you are Mr. So-and-so, the sandalless man who wouldn't redeem the land. But look at the great cost it was going to cost him. When the man looks at it, and the man looks at what he's already got, he's likely already a landowner, and he looks at the situation. And he understands the reality that as he marries this woman, <clears throat> and they have a child together, he spends, you know, umpteen years raising this child, feeding this child, which if it's a boy could be quite expensive. <clears throat> Child's going to grow up, get old enough someday, and is going to take that land that he has had to pay to tend and not reap any of the money from, and it's going to leave. So it's going to cost him a great deal. Not to mention any subsequent children that he has with Ruth will get a share of the inheritance that his children were already going to split. 
So say he's already got three children, he goes and he has four more with Ruth, he is splitting that land over and over and over again. All except for that one parcel that will never be split. We'll go to the first male child that he has with Ruth. So he looks at Boaz and says, man, that, that sounded so appealing. It sounded so attractive. But upon further review, I don't think I can do that. I can't further split my inheritance. And then we get a little bit of history here in 7 and 8. Verse 7 lets us know clearly that this was written sometime after the events transpire. It says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm a transaction. The one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So we know that there was a time and place where when they exchanged property, that one would take off his, his sandal and would give it to the other person. Now you can read in Deuteronomy 25 about leveret marriage and the one who would not uh, redeem his brother's bride, and we see the same type of thing show up where if... If, if I'm married and, and I die, my brother says, eh, like Valerie, but, you know, man, I, I just can't go there. I just, that, that's just not going to work for me. She would take his sandal, spit in his face, and, and, and that would be just a really awkward time for all future family reunions. And so what we see here is that this, there's an example that describes this transfer of property. And then in verse 8, he goes on, he says, So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he took off his sandal. But check this out, Boaz doesn't beat the guy down, he doesn't talk down to him. He's entering into this dialogue, this legal conversation with this guy, and he turns to the elders, he turns to these ten men, and he moves with all haste to settle this matter. Boaz says to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech, all that belonged to Kilion and to Malon. He says, you are witnesses this day. I am taking possession of the land. This is how thorough he is. He says, you all know Naomi's deceased husband, Elimelech. On this day, I take into possession all that he owns. He said, you all remember that, that Naomi and Elimelech had a son named Kilion. On this day, I take into possession all that he owns. And then he comes to last. He says, and you all remember Malon. On this day, I take into possession all that belonged to Malon. And for him, he was married to Ruth. Ruth is the widow of Malon in verse 10. And I have bought, whom I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance that the name of the dead may not be cut off from his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are my witnesses today. Man, do you see the selflessness in that? It's not that Boaz looks at it and he says, guys, you know I've been lonely for a long time. You know I'm getting old and my back creaks and I want somebody to rub it. You know I'm getting old and I've got bunions and blisters on my feet that I want somebody to tend. You know I like to tell stories and nobody likes to listen, so I need somebody here to listen to my stories. Now he goes in and he says, look, I understand what this is going to cost me. I understand that when I get married to Ruth, what I am doing is continuing the line of Elimelech. What I am doing is preserving his line. 
I am marrying her, in some sense, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. He realizes that this is a land he's going to be a steward of, that this is a land he's going to be a protector of, and that as valuable as male children were, the first male child would not be his. And he enters into it with that very precise and that very selfless understanding. And he says, you are witnesses these days. And then we see that they are all Baptists because all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. He said, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah who together built up the house of Israel. And may you act, Boaz, may you act worthily here and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So the elders of the city, they've heard Boaz and this other man engage in this dialogue, this legal dialogue back and forth. And he turns to them, he says, you guys have heard all of this. And they respond in the affirmative and say, we are witnesses. And then they offer them this beautiful blessing. Say, Boaz, when you marry Ruth, and they, they, they appeal back to the very beginnings of their nation. Said, let her be fruitful. Let your generations be blessed. Let you continue to act in the way that you have acted up to this point. Let you act worthily. Let your name be known. Let it be renowned. They extend this beautiful blessing on, on one who would redeem a stranger. On one who would redeem a stranger. Now we see that. But then what we see the narrator do is move from verse 12 to verse 13. We see some nine months likely have taken place in there. Verse 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now, there's just a little bit of understanding there that, it's, that we need to stop and just touch for a second. So we read verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, they were married, and she, she gives birth to a son. But if we read it too quickly, we pass over this. It says, the Lord gave her conception. You'll remember for 10 years that that. that these women were married to other men, and they didn't have any children. They didn't have somebody that could already do this for them, be their name, be their protector, be their redeemer. And God opens up the womb of Ruth, and, she gives, and he gives a son to Ruth and Boaz. And this is what we hear about the son. First it says, The woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. Talking of the son, she says, may his name be renowned in Israel. And he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Man, in a society that is, that is totally given to male prominence. In a, in a society that, that valued men so much more than women, and some of this has to do with their legal stature in, in the society, this is what they say about Ruth. That she is more valuable. That she worked more diligently. That her 
resulting, the resulting effects of her actions were more beneficial than even if Naomi had given birth to seven sons. Man, this woman who came over who was indeed an enemy to the people of Israel, but has come over and has transferred from being an unknown outsider to one who is referred to as being a worthy woman who has more value than seven sons. Then Naomi took the child, verse 16, and placed her upon her lap and became his nurse. She's taking care of the child. And all the women in the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. See, Obed means servant. And do you see how that, that's working in there, that Ruth refers to herself as Boaz's servant, and now a child has been born that is indeed a servant. A child has been born that is a restorer of life. But look at the hand of God moving as we begin to summarize this story. At some point, God moved and he caused Boaz to be born. Boaz grows up, he's living and, and growing in righteousness and understanding and, right, understand, and, and, and just prominence in the land. People respect him. And then he's got a relative named Elimelech that's born. And Elimelech works together and he, 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 he finds this woman who's just a stone-cold fox and he, he marries her and he and Naomi have two children. They have Kilion and they have Malon. And then Elimelech doesn't know what to do. See, because there's a famine in the land, he can't provide and care for his family anymore, and so he doesn't know what to do, and so he journeys to another land. In some ways you could say he's acting in disobedience, pursuing the things that he thinks are right instead of the things that he knows are right. So he goes over there to get, to get some food, to be able to provide for his family, in the providence of God, he dies. But his sons take Moabite wives. They take wives from the families of, of people that should be wholly set against the people of Israel. They take wives that, that really should not look forward to family reunions at all, and they should despise all those people left over in the land. They take wives that shouldn't like anything to do with Israel. And their names are Orpah. And Ruth, in the providence of God, both sons die. Kilion dies, Malon dies. There, there are no sons left. There's no one to provide for Naomi. And she happens to be in the field one day, and she hears word that, that God's hand has returned in faithfulness to the people of Israel. And the land's producing. You remember that? She happens to be in the right place at the right time. She hears that the land is producing a faithfulness. So she gathers up her daughter-in-laws and she tells them, she says, hey, look, we're going to take a trip. We're going to go back to the land because God's hand has revisited in faithfulness. And these women that her sons have chosen to marry, they respond with this tremendous display of faithfulness. They're going to abandon everything they know. They're going to abandon their family. They're going to go back to a land filled with people that likely hold them in great disdain. 
And so they go on to this trip, and, and only at, at Naomi's tremendous pleading, when she turns to her daughter-in-laws over and over again, and she says, don't come with me, this was a bad idea, go back to your father's home. Go back to your father's homeland. Be married. She extends this blessing to them. She says, let God look kindly upon you. Let God show this type of hesed faithfulness to you. Let God be good to you. Orpah finally relents. She turns and she goes back to her father's land. So Naomi turns to Ruth and she says, Ruth, I don't think you understand how how difficult this is going to be. I don't think you understand how awful this is going to be. And Ruth's response is one of steadfast faithfulness. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you lay down, I will lay down. Your God will be my God. Your people will be my people. And when you lie down and die, I will stay there. You see, the hand of God was moving in the birth of Ruth. Ruth is born... In, 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 a, in a land, in a nation that is wholly opposed to the place where her husband is born. She grows up in faithfulness. Her life experiences are such that when she is faced with the option of returning to what she knows or staying on with the woman that she has come to love, she chooses her instead. And God is moving to bring about his purposes for this family. And so they get back into the land and <laughs> things Things are better, but they're not great. And Naomi looks at her life and she says, No longer call me Naomi, no longer call me blessed, but call me Mara, for I am bitter. And so Ruth realizes, she says, Man, I've got to do something. I've got to care for this woman. I've got to, to have some type of provision. So as an outsider and a stranger in the land, she wanders out. And the text tells us that she happened to be in the part of the field that belonged to Boaz. You see, God is at work even directing the steps of Ruth, even directing her steps and through serendipity, the place she happens to find herself. And Boaz happens to come down there and he sees her. She's working with all might and all diligence. You don't remember that, that Ruth goes back and she goes back to her mother-in-law and she says, man, I, I, I worked in the field today and this guy came along and he was so nice and he blessed us so bountifully. And Naomi says, well, what is his name? She said, well, it's Boaz. And we find out in the providence of God that, that Ruth hasn't happened into the field of a stranger, but she has happened into the field of a relative, of someone that actually could be a redeemer for them. See, the happenstance of God has been moving over and over again in their lives to reveal himself to be their true redeemer. And this other man who is also born and, and is of closer birth and has every right and every indication that he should be the one to redeem can't do it. And he says no. And so then Boaz steps up and this beautiful budding romance takes shape and finds its fruition between Ruth and Boaz. But check out where God is going with this. You see, for the narrator's concept, everything is settled in the genealogy. He says that they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And in verses 18 through 22, he gives us a more full picture. He said, now these are the days of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram of Amenadab. Amenadab of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon, the father of Boaz. Bo- Boaz, the father of Obed. Obed, father Jesse. Jesse, father David. So as far as our narrator is concerned, 
this was the height of the story. That God worked in and amongst the, the sundry details of this insignificant family in Bethlehem. That God chose insignificant, normal, everyday people to bring about his king. That through the happenstance of life, God was moving to bring about David, a king that would be born that people would write and say, he is a king after God's own heart. I mean, this average, ordinary, nothing family in Bethlehem. And God did something truly amazing. See, our narrator doesn't even know the half of it. Because God was not done yet. We flip over to Matthew. And we see this same genealogy show up in Matthew 1.5. And Sam and the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. But when you skip down to verse 16, you begin to see the full recognition of it coming on. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. You see, just as God was moving in the happenstance and the details of this average, ordinary, nothing family in Bethlehem to bring about the birth of King David, we recognize that God was moving in the happenstance in the dealings of an ordinary, average, nothing family to bring about the birth of Jesus. Both in Bethlehem. Both families that, if nobody had, had gone on to write about their connection between, between Boaz to Obed to Jesse to David, we wouldn't see. And that outside of God's intervention, the relationship of Jesus' parents outside of God's intervention wouldn't have stirred anything for us. But God was working in the details of average people to bring about redemption. Now for, for Ruth and Naomi, Boaz functioned as a beautiful redeemer. He, he rescued these two women from their plight. He rescued these two widows from poverty. He rescued them from a situation that they could not control. And ultimately, it leads to King David, and David is moving in such a way as to, as to bring about God's reign. But this is what we see for us. See that God is moving in our lives in the happenstance of all things, and he is moving through one who is not a king after God's own heart, but who actually has the heart of God. See, he's, he's moving in one who is not, not frail and, and prone to fault, but he is moving to one who is perfect and faultless. That in Boaz, God was moving to bring about an earthly king, but in Jesus, he is bringing about a heavenly king. That in Boaz, we see temporary redemption, but in Jesus, we see eternal redemption. Paul, writing of this same redemption in Ephesians 1-7, wrote these words. He says, In him, speaking of Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Man, that God is at work in all the details of our lives, bringing us to the place we need to be so we can be confronted with the truth of his word. That we can be confronted with the truth of his word. Because when we look at our reality and we look at the way God views us, we recognize that as Paul also writes in Romans 5.8, that man, we were 
We were enemies of God, but God sent his son to die, even that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Even that while we were yet working and moving in direct opposition to God, he is orchestrating the happenstance and the details of our life to confront us with this truth, that God loves you, that he sent his son to die for you. And a non-response doesn't make you safe. Putting off the conversation doesn't put him off, doesn't make you safe, because God issues to you, he offers to you salvation in the name of his son. He issues to you, he offers to you redemption in his blood. He issues to you, he offers to you a relationship with him at Christ's expense. The redeemer that none could manufacture, the redeemer that none could bring about on their own. And the question that each of us have to answer how do we respond to that redemption? What change does that redemption bring about and that offer of redemption bring about in our lives? Do we bow ourselves humbly before the king and cry out, Abba, Father, save me? Or do we continue to live in indifference? Do we continue to try and keep God at arm's length and say, I'm not comfortable with you coming in here? Do we continue to try and do it on our own and save ourselves? Or do we release ourselves, do we bow before God and humbly cry out, save me? You see, for the non-Christian, that's the only decision that there is for you to make. And man, for those of us who, who already testify to the redemption of God moving in our lives, there is an onus upon us to move in the same way that we see Boaz moving. You see this other man, he, he looked at his life and he said, this is too costly for me, I can't move in this direction. But we see Boaz was willing put his own inheritance at risk, that Boaz was willing to do something that was going to cost him a great deal. That as Christians, we should be moving to extend the wing of God's protection to those that don't know him. We should be moving to communicate his redemptive purposes. And so this is the question I ask you this morning. You believe that? You believe that, that God is still redeeming and still saving people today? Then here's the question. Who's the last person you told about it? Do you still think people are lost and they're going to hell if they don't believe and get saved by Jesus? I'm not trying to guilt you. I'm not trying to make you feel bad about it. But I want you to critically evaluate where you're at. If you think that's such a good message, then who's the last person you told about it? And did you do it with tears in your eyes? Or do you say, look, somebody else would do that? You see, God is moving in the happenstance and the details of your life to bring you across the path of people that so badly need to hear this message. I was thinking of my own story this morning. I was born in Manny, Louisiana, and, and at three years old, God moved my family to Europe. We moved to Stavanger, Norway. And at the same time, God had been moving for many decades in a man from the south from Florida, to bring he and his family as missionaries to Stavanger, Norway. And this man served as the pastor of North Sea Baptist Church, and this man shared the words that bring life with a young child. See, God moved in the happenstance and the details of this man's life to bring him several thousand miles to a country he had not known. 
and to bring me from the backwoods and backwater town of Manny, Louisiana, to a country and a place and a people and a language that I could never know, to work for my salvation. Friends, God is calling on us to be faithful and to respond. Will you be an agent of grace and a communicator or change, or will you sit back and do nothing? Follow the example of Boaz. Pride yourself on the movement of God in your life and relish in the fact that he loves you, that he is working all things together for his good, and that he has redeemed you. Let me pray for us.